welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that provides you with conversations with experts and like-minded people who would like to see education turn into a flourishing environment for the well-being of all. So, are you ready? Let's start. Hope you enjoy this session. Welcome to another Imperfectly Perfect conversation. Today I'm talking to Dr. Steve Hall. So he's a learning practitioner um, with a passion for learning, seeking for answers and solutions, uh, drawing from his practice uh, in education. He'll tell us more in a minute with a view to making education better. He's also senior lecturer in education at Staffordshire University in the School of Life Sciences and Education. A very warm welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thank you very much. And thank you for giving me an extra, um, a bonus bit to my title. Yeah, I'm, I, no, I'm not actually well, a doctor, doctor I, yet. No. I assumed. I yeah, assumed. no. So just before you know, anybody else who might be listening to this say, hey, <laughs> he's got coming onto this, pro, onto this podcast under false pretenses. So no, I don't have my doctorate yet. Okay, not yet. Are you working towards it? I certainly am, yes. yes. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. So my apologies for making assumptions. <laughs> so, um, Steve, uh, very warm welcome. Um, shall we start this conversation with um, your, your, you know, the, the whole of your journey? So tell us, you know, you, you're a little bit like, like, like I am really sort of curious and quite passionate about education. Um, and so I would love for you to share your journey with us. Uh, well, okay. Uh, I'd have to start by saying it was never my intention to, uh, to teach, in fact, or to, or to follow a career in education, mainly because, and it's, I suppose it is the rebel in me when I was a teenager, because I saw that everybody else in my I chose a different route. And, uh, and I did so, in, you know, quite deliberately so that I could um, be be master of my own destiny but as the fickle finger of fate would have it I ended up I still ended up with an opportunity to um, to do a PGCE at just that point in my career you know I just finished my degree and I wasn't quite sure which direction I was going to go in and that was the point at which my my dad struck and he said well there just happens to be a a spare place on a on a PE uh, on a specialist PE PGCE course uh, at local college. Would you be interested in that? I said, "Oh, that sounds interesting," and that was it. I, I was in, and, and by the time I'd done my second teaching practice, I was hooked, and I just really enjoyed myself. I went into secondary education to start off with, and then I progressed through into middle, and and I had a formative experience in a, a in a in the first nine to 13 middle school that I worked in. And I had a responsibility for a group of 125 um, 12 year olds. And they were my year group. I was, I was appointed as, as head of year. I hadn't applied for that. I'd applied for the head of science job, but during the interview, they'd said, we'd like you to have the head of science job, but we'd also like you to take on um, <clears throat> a, a year heads position. And I thought, wow, this is great. And that responsibility for uh, for that group of children made me realize that what I really wanted to do was to run my own school. And that's what I, I then worked towards. And I ended up becoming head teacher of the school at which I had been a pupil when I was, um, uh, when I was at school. And at wow. the time, my dad was the head teacher. So not only did he get me into teaching, he actually managed to somehow... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how we managed to do it, but I ended up um, being head teacher of the school where he had been head teacher as well. So it was it was a labour of love, and it, it became my passion project, um, and and I just loved every minute of it. I just really enjoyed it, and it was a wrench for me when I knew that I'd come to the point where I needed to make a change, change a direction, a change, a new challenge, and I moved into higher education. I went into um, uh, uh, into become senior lecturer 
and and I've enjoyed that, and it's brought me into a wide range of um, of of other of of other educationists, and I'm really grateful to have that opportunity, and also to 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 bring me to realise that there's a whole world of research out there that could have been informing the practice that I was implementing in my own school. And if I could go back and do everything again, I would go back with much more research informed um, practice uh, with it within my school. That's one of the big lessons that I've learned from moving into higher education, the value of research informed practice. Mm, beautiful journey amazing and how amazing that you actually um, ended up being a head teacher where your father was yeah 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 he came to visit and uh and and um when he came to visit the uh the local uh local tv got to know about it so they came out so it was hilarious it was just yeah. hilarious him recalling you know some of the things that he did and me recalling some of the things slightly differently to the way that he remembered it <laughs> But it was great. It was great. Yeah. It, was, yeah, it was good fun. Um, amazing. So you were saying um, how being in higher education has um, given you, you know, sort of the, the, the feeling that there is an, a need for more sort of research-based um, change and, you know, um, research-informed um, change. Um, do you think there is enough of that currently in, in the system? Um, I can only speak for this country. I mean, although yeah. I've done a lot of work in different parts of the world and, and I've appreciated the opportunity to see what's going, what's happening in education in other parts of the world, in, in relation to this country, no, I don't think that there is, and I don't um, you mean that as a criticism, um, the, the system is just too full. Yeah, there's not enough white space in, in the system as far as I'm concerned for teachers and head teachers and learners and parents to be able to input their ideas, their views, their creativity. It's just too rammy jammy full. And so I can fully understand if um, teachers and head teachers don't uh, use research as much as maybe they would like to, because maybe they're, they're just, they're finding it difficult to do that. And I suppose one of my missions at the moment is to try and help schools to see how they can make, that they can bring research in on a, as part of their everyday practice, not as another bolt on, not yet another bolt on that comes in, but actually part of their everyday practice. So it just becomes more like second nature over time. And you can only do that, I think, if you do that layer by layer, you can't do that in one. It's not a light switch. You can just switch on. It's got to be something you do gradually over time and uh, and it and it needs to grow organically. But I think that's one of the things I would recommend to schools, you know, and I do whenever I get the opportunity to talk about it. Mm, I love that. And, you know, the, the conversation so for our listeners, this is not the first time I, uh, you know, Steve and I speak, we've, we've spoken a couple of times already, because there's so much synergy between, you know, what, it, what he's thinking and my thinking. Um, but one of the things that I would really love us to discuss today is first what you've mentioned that our listeners may have heard and thought, okay, what is this? You mentioned the word white so would you would you explain to us what you mean by that yeah certainly i mean that's become one of the things that i've had the um been working at, in at, at university has given me the opportunity to explore things like white space and and to then look back at practice my own practice both as a as a teacher, as a facilitator of learning, but also as a school leader uh, and think about things that we did um, instinctively and intuitively. And now we get a chance to go back and look about, look at it in a bit more depth and to understand why did we do that and what was that all about? And one of the things that I'd been working towards as a, as a practitioner in schools was the, the fact that, just what I was saying, that the fact that we fill a planning document, for example, absolutely full so we would plan the week and we would have it over planned in my opinion and we'd need to perhaps look at early years to get some lessons from them and see well actually they're probably they, at the most they would plan for the first half of the week 
you know, maybe for the first couple of days and the rest would be white space. Well, why, why, why are you doing that? Well, well, we don't know what the children are going to, how the children are going to respond to the first two days. So why would we plan all five days of this week until we know um, where, where their thinking is going to take us? And, and it was, yeah, that, that working with early as practitioners and and understanding that say so yeah and why are we not doing that why are we not doing that for for all children why we're we not creating spaces so we started uh, to develop a, a, almost a non-planning document and we wondered how far could we go by not planning uh, and and i don't mean that dead pigeon in the car park syndrome you know you sort of what are we going to do today drive into the car park oh there's a dead pigeon right I'll I'll make the curriculum around a dead pigeon today you're not relying on that you're not relying on on such sort of uh, chances of fate that is going to dictate what you do and you can and so I'm not saying that you don't have a a, a shape and a, um, a structure and a direction to the curriculum but you don't need to fill the detail in until the learners have had an opportunity to have their say. So we would start, um, one of the things we first did was to not put learning um, outcomes or learning objectives filled until we'd found out from the children what they thought their, the learning outcomes could be. What were their learning objectives? What were they hoping to get from this piece of work that we were starting? So we gradually would reduce the amount of um, writing we would put onto a planning document and we would deliberately leave white space there in order to um, uh, allow time for, for their ideas and their creativity. And that has led on to developing the concept of white space into something, well, we all need this. You know, we all actually need, in, in this busy world in which we live in, you know, how often have we said, I just need some time and space, you know, and, and the value of that. And, and by not having that time and space, what is that doing to your productivity in terms of being creative, in terms of developing those ideas? Are you shutting those things down um, by not having white space? And, and what does that look like when, you, when you've got just the amount of the right amount of, of time and space for for you to be at your optimum. What is that for you? Because it will be different for you than it is for me. It'll be for different for both of us in different circumstances. In some cases, I don't want a lot of white space because I like that pressure to get something done. But on other occasions, when I've, I'm in expansive mode and my mind's like a mind map, I need lots of white space in order to explore some of those ideas to see where they might go. And and it's it's a concept more than a thing that uh, that you you can you can uh, it's a it's a almost a mindset of of um, making sure that you've got the amount of white space that you need in order for you to function to be the best me that I can be would be the way that I can't to describe it. And that resonates so much with the concept that I've been playing around with, which is you know, the human being versus human doing. So yes, yes, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much notion, so. Yeah, yeah, very much notion. so. Um, I love that. Um, and, and you mentioned early years. And, and one of the things that I've noticed through my research through the podcast and the conversations over the last year is that really, for me, um, you know, early years is probably what we've got sort of right in the UK. I think maybe we've we've we start young people too too with children too early, maybe. I guess that could be the one thing that I would question. But I think early years is really good. And I remember with my son, you know, when he started reception, he was all over the place in the room and just like playing here, there and everywhere. And then suddenly somehow the system like bang, I remember in year one, he really struggled being sat at a desk all the time and not having access to the whole of the classroom like he used to in reception. Um, and, and then obviously as we go on in the system, it gets more and more, like you were saying, the curriculum, the, the, the curriculum is so full, is so, you know, their days is so filled with, 
you know, you've got to learn this and this, you know, it's what um, Guy Claxton mentioned in, in the interview I had with him, which is, you know, the, the direct, the, the knowledge rich sort of uh, directly instructed sort of uh, curriculum or approach. Um, and you mentioned two things that I, I would love us to explore. So you said, you know, you, the teacher or the head teacher would be filling in planning documents. So it's sort of teacher led and it's about what the teacher believes young people need to learn as opposed to asking young children or you know young people what they want to learn from from this um, and also it's about individuals and it's about being responsive so how is my whatever I want to talk about going to be uh, received by the young young people in the room and where is that going to take us in terms of the learning and the exploration well i certainly never worry now i never worry now about where it might take us okay. I, and i think i think one of the, the the big um uh cultural factors that holds us back in this country and, and i i think it tends to be in education generally but it it it, it is for different reasons is fear Mm. And and for us, it's the fear that we're not covering everything in the curriculum and, and the implications that that might have. Uh, and and the worry that actually, well, that's great. It's really great. You know, I don't know where it's going to take us, but this is where I want us to go. So, well, what if, but what if where it takes us is further on than where you, um, you, you're planning for us to go? And, and you're part of this anyway. If I was talking to a teacher about this and say, well, you're part of this anyway you're you're um bright enough to be able to uh where the opportunity arises to to push it towards where you were hoping for it to go but but don't do that at the expense of others that might be pushing it in a slightly different direction because actually you might still get to where you want to be but it'd be a much more interesting um way to go and you'll have more people with you by the time you get to the end so I think that whole thing around trust and feeling that um, letting go doesn't mean to say losing control. And, and I think, and, and that all comes about, you mentioned Guy Claxton, I think that comes about by having a shared language of learning. And, and what we found was that we could let go a lot more when after we had invested time in, de um, in developing a language for a common language of learning for learners, for teachers, for parents, for um, uh, everybody that was involved in the school, we would use that same language. Now we learned that from Guy Claxton. And uh, mm -hmm. one of the best things we did was to not just go and buy a, a, you know, a Guy Claxton building learning power box and then open it up and just liberally apply it everywhere and think everything was going to be magic. We invested our time in the thinking behind building learning power. And yes, we used the terminology because it was really helpful to give the children something that they could relate to. But we got into the stuff that he talks about, about learnish um you know what do you understand learnish and we developed a language that was common to all of us therefore when we were having conversations with the with the children and the children were telling us where they wanted us where they wanted their learning to go they were using a language and a vocabulary vocabulary that we could understand where that how that would bring us to the point that we were hoping to get to and i think that is a big step forward for for any school I think is to develop that language of learning and to have a, that focus on learning so one of the reasons I think there's a yes there's a, there is a lot of enthusiasm for learner-led and um, uh, the learner voice and I, well that's fine but actually is have we got a shared language to make sure we understand one another yeah so when the learners are leading it do we understand where they're taking us and when they're when we're listening to them are we able to listen to them properly because we understand exactly what they're saying and that that requires i think an investment of time a commitment to do that because then that frees up what it is that, that you want to do that also then allows you to have a, a more open uh, approach to planning because you have that trust between one another as colleagues you also have that trust um you, you develop a trust between leadership and 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 you know the 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 troops on the ground but you've also got that trust between 
the teachers or facilita as facilitators of, of learning and the learners themselves so that when they do take feel they can take control it's shared it's not it's not handing over responsibility to them it's it's a shared it's a shared responsibility and it's a, it's the whole thing it feels much more like a collaborative and shared shared event it, it was no so it was no sorry it was no it was no um accident that when we came to rebuild the school we designed it for collaborative learning so that we could create spaces in which that collaboration could be facilitated including the corridors being wider so you could have conversations in the corridors not silence in the corridors you could actually stop and talk to somebody about learning in the corridors oh my goodness like conversations in the corridors <laughs> that, is, that is a completely new concept right <laughs> no not at all because circulation spaces are learning spaces aren't they and the, the circulation spaces that we introduced were wide enough for people to be able to move around but they were also they also um were uh, punctuated by uh, opening out into wider spaces where there was uh, where there were learning activities could be taking place so it was quite normal to be walking around the school to be interrupted by uh, by uh, children saying to you oh mr hall would you just come and have a look at this yeah and they they wanted to show you something that they were doing and and every adult in the school was encouraged to stop and engage with learning wherever they found it so it was quite normal to be stopped in the corridor um uh to have a to have a conversation between across generations uh, about learning but also for the learners to be talking themselves to one another about what they were doing as they were going to do to get whatever they needed from another part of the school in order to um to help them with their learning it's it it's built into it it's part of the the whole environment and the culture of learning included the spaces being uh, to facilitate that um you know rather than get to the classroom okay let's switch on the learning now now we come into this room it just it it it's it's a false scenario in my view it needs to be uh, it needs to be able to happen wherever it needs to happen yes and this is what i meant when i sort of said it's such a novelty that if you look look at the language that's currently being used and that you see in the in the papers it is about silence in the corridor and you're not talking and it's about <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's crazy isn't it it's crazy i, re I remember doing um i remember doing a, a visit oh, I can't remember. i've done uh, i've worked for a number of different organizations as a as a head teacher uh, but then you get drafted in to do things and and the specialist schools and academies trust um some time ago set up a family a family of schools which was a, a the primary wing of of ssat back in the early 2000s and um we did quite a lot of uh work with schools and we did quite a lot of reports actually we were, we were feeding reports including work with um David Hargreaves on personalizing learning. And that was another privilege to be able to part, be part of that. But part of some of the work that we would do would be going into looking at um, what was happening in, in other people's schools and reporting back on that as well to them, but also reporting back generally. And I remember going into, and I can't remember, I won't, <laughs> I won't name this person, but this was a famous person. This was somebody who was really well known in education at the time and was seen as a as a leading light and this person i tried not to to mention gender either one way or the other for, uh, for this this person was insisted that um in walking around the school i took into account the fact that the children were all working really quietly and i was horrified because this this was being promoted as being exceptional practice and i just thought would I want my child to come here? My own child to come here? No, not at all. And uh, that that opportunity for dialogue, and I don't mean just constant, you know, uh, chatting for the sake of chatting, but that if you get things right and you've got you've got the culture right in the school, then you need to trust that the conversations are going to be, you know, more than more than you know 70 percent the conversations are going to be about learning because that's the way that it works and 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 unless they have the opportunity to practice that how on earth are they ever going to learn yeah 
and and if we don't give them the opportunity you know it goes back to that poem that i shared with you the you know the things we steal from children we're just taking those opportunities away from them to have that meaningful dialogue i did a uh, i was an ofsted inspector but i'm better now <laughs> I I do sometimes introduce myself like that. I used to be an Ofsted inspector, but I'm better now. Uh, and uh, I don't mean anything disparaging to Ofsted inspectors. I'm sure they're you know great people, um, and I know they are. Yeah, we've had some great um, Ofsted inspectors to work with. Um, but during my training, I went uh, into a to a to a friend's to ask a friend if I could go into into his school and uh, and he said yeah sure he said in fact one of my staff um, wants somebody to come in to do a practice um, uh, a lesson observation would you come and do it I said yeah fine love to and I, I went and I was in there and I've never been one for sitting at the back of a room with a you know um, uh, <laughs> can't even remember the name of it I don't use them that often you know a tick chart you know clipboard and tick chart you know just don't do that. Um, I'd get involved with the children. I'd, I learned more by going and talking to the children and finding out from them. I'd learn from, uh, in addition to the observations that I would make, but it was more about them what they'd have to say. So I was sitting at a group and there was this fantastic conversation going on, really, really good. There was about six or seven children in this and they were really supporting one another's learning, except for one girl who was sitting there with a uh, with her head in her hands and was not engaged. And I tried to get her to engage. She said, no. she said they're making too much noise. At which point, a teacher comes over and told the whole group to be quiet because this girl couldn't speak. Anyway, I didn't say anything at the time. But afterwards, I said, I could have failed you on that. I said, because you absolutely killed stone dead some brilliant learning that was going on and it was um it was a real shame that you did that because what that girl needed to be able to know was that she had permission to get up and move away from the others so that she could be quiet and instead you shut everybody else up and i said i would say to you that that would be something that if you did that during an inspection uh, a proper inspection that wouldn't go down well in your favor uh and she was a bit upset at the time because i was a bit blunt i suppose <laughs> i would have to say i would have i would have failed that lesson on that i was a bit harsh <laughs> i was learning <laughs> as i say i'm better now um but uh, but that was a i've always remembered that i've always remembered that that experience of saying well actually so why don't we give children permission and trust them that they can take themselves to where they need to be and that whole thing around knowing yourself as a learner is another important part of the jigsaw for me mm. and, ha and having the self-confidence and self uh having that self-knowledge as a as a learner work using metacognition to help children really understand themselves as learners so that they've got the confidence to move themselves away from a situation where they're being their learning is being interrupted or to move themselves into a situation where their their learning can be helped by someone else and empowering children to do that as well as having the language for learning as well i think you're yeah you're onto a winner with uh, with that and I would love for us to explore this further, okay? Because um, this weekend I was listening to Live Wired by Igorman, um, and and in there, you know, it, I actually put a, a LinkedIn post because I it sort of literally Igorman explains how um, every single conversation we have, uh, you know, our environment, our brain is constantly being reshaped yeah. by by the conversation. So for that particular teacher, for example, okay, yeah, maybe what you said came as, as a, you know, for her, you don't know unless unless she could tell us, but yeah. as abrupt, but actually that would have reshaped her views of who as, a, as an educator, you know, as a teacher, what she, how she should approach uh, the situation in her classroom. Um, and, and I think one of the things that I've noticed through conversations, but also, you know, just sort of reading experts work is there there is there are so many paradigms in in education in terms of what we believe um or how a young person learns and they sort of standardized you know everybody learns in the same way at the same pace um they need the same environment um and 
And so therefore the system, and I guess I would imagine that's why this teacher sort of ask everybody else to be quiet mm. is because that's the standard. It's like you need to, um, it's almost like if you talk with your peers about the problem, then it's cheating. Um, and that is completely, and it's, it's ridiculous to be yeah. to young people, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and and actually, in fan in fairness to the teacher, she's a very very good teacher. I know I know her and I've, I've you know known her since, and uh, she she was and I'm sure still is. If she's she may well have retired by now, but she's a very good teacher. And I'm I would have put that down more to the fact that it was the not being used to people being in and observing lessons that caused her to do what she did and thinking that it relates to exactly what you were saying it relate um that thinking that we have to stick to cultural norms or to, to specific norms that that is seen as uh, regarded as good practice rather than looking at learners in front of us and thinking what's the most appropriate practice for these learners and being committed to that and having the confidence to do that and the confidence needs to come from above you know that 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 confidence and that trust needs to come in from leadership to to so that people feel it's fine to do that and in fact it's important that they do do that so that anytime that anybody comes into into a room another reason for designing a school for collaborative learning was it was semi-open plan with some very subtle but neat um quieter areas of you know for exactly for that for that the kind of child to be able to remove themselves to so it wasn't open plan mayhem it was it was semi-open plan but it was the interaction between the staff that was just as important as the interaction between the learners so the staff could learn from one another the staff could actually have people coming into their areas without it interfering with their with them other than to give them an opportunity when the time was right to engage in a conversation exactly what say about what was going on and that and that's modeling i think that's modeling as adults to the children that it's okay to to talk and in fact it's good to talk and it's important to talk and that we learn from one another by conversations and by talking and then you can if you've got that that kind of culture and you've got that kind of level of trust then you can adapt what you're doing to you know for to make sure the learners are getting the best deal and 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 not having to conform to a particular norm mm. and i wonder if that comes with a with a notion that again it's a societal one where young people and you know and, and adults so you know we we the the adults are you know the sage on the stage we have all the knowledge and we're going to pass it on to you I mean, there's, there's a lot of that in terms of paradigms and in terms of um, uh, my eldest, I'll give you an example, my eldest in his school was explaining how his friends had, um, <clears throat> his homework was on his um, on his mobile phone because he, he being at home had run out on yeah. the printer, so he'd not been able to print yeah. um, his homework. And so he said to the teacher, um, my homework is on my phone and she went oh, okay yes okay and so he got his mobile out yes yeah. go her the homework and she went I have not given you permission to get your oh, phone out no. oh, literally no. gave him oh. a one and then when he started speaking saying but it, but but you know and he's just trying to justify she said I'm going to give you an A2 <laughs> and, oh. and my son was like oh my goodness yeah petrified yeah um, and so when i hear you describe what you, you created in your school this is so different from what we see and hear in in secondary schools so but it doesn't have to be that way fabian I know, surely i don't i just don't understand that um at, well at, for me, that would just be the fear factor kicking in and the fact yeah. that we've got to get these kids to yeah. jump through these hoops and we're yeah. going to be judged by that. And if there is going to be a paradigm shift, I think the thing around accountability has got to change and, and, and not for accountability to drive what goes on. It scared the living daylights out of me when I was at a, a meeting of the learner teacher, a conference for the learner teacher network, which is a, a European wide network, great networker you know it has been a great network in the past to be part of and um 
and, and people from all over Europe. And I actually heard Finnish teachers admitting that they were started to consider teaching to the test because Finland had slipped in the PISA rankings. And therefore there was talk about them maybe needing to teach more to the test. Now we would look up to, to Finland, wouldn't we? And hopefully that was maybe, you know, that was a, a few years ago and hopefully that was just a, a blip and nothing actually ever happened as a result of that. But that to me hit home the problem. Well, if, if Finland who to me had always been a sort of the bastions of good practice in terms of being really focused on trust, equity, and uh, and autonomy for you know for teachers, and those are the three sort of pillars that that hold them together. And it would be a slippery slope for them, as it has been for us, to be allow us to be driven by external agendas that that judge us. And and yes, it, I understand that's how the way the world works, but do we want it to work that way? And maybe maybe we need to start taking a bit more control back of the the accountability agenda and deciding that maybe we're going to um we're going to try and influence more uh, what is measured in schools and uh, what is measured in in learning and in education not just in schools but you know what do we value what are the things that are most important and actually um, is it really is it is it a truism that uh, getting kids to jump through those five a to c hoops ends up with us having that much better uh, an economy and if if that's the only thing they can do is that they've got a skill of jumping through that particular hoop. What about all the other skills that they're going to need to in order to adapt and adjust to a changing world and uh, on a world when all of a sudden something comes and bites you that you weren't expecting like COVID-19, where's the, how does that work then? You know, how does that work? How do they, how have they got the skills to be able to suddenly adapt? I've actually been amazed by the skills they have got to adapt by uh, being able to learn remotely when they've been given the opportunity to, uh, and also to, um, uh, to to replace some of the things that they were doing with other things that skilled them probably even more than uh, they would have done if they had carried on just doing their coursework. And I know I kind of get shot down in flames with by you know, secondary colleagues for saying uh, saying this, but let's have a discussion about it. You know, do we really want to drive yourselves into the ground by sticking to this, allowing this accountability agenda to, to burn teachers out, to burn head teachers out? There's something wrong. And surely what COVID-19 has told us, shown us, is that when that brought everything to a halt and we could no longer have the exams and the tests, there are other ways of doing things. And maybe that's one of the things we, we need to make sure we don't go back to thinking post COVID-19. Let's not go back to that same accountability agenda. Let's start there by changing that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think I think it's really important. I would really love us to go to uh, the, go back to that shared language of learning because I yeah. really like yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. As, a, yeah. as a linguist, I really like that. Oh yeah, of course, yes. And I really love, you know, I'm a, I'm a, like yourself I'm always like okay so we know accountability is not working we know that loads of teachers are leaving the profession because they can't cope with it you know I think I think post-covid we need to have those conversations and so one of my thoughts is what if we could bring together young people parents educators, leaders, you know, policymakers, dare I say, you know, Ofsted and even our government, I don't know whether they would want to join the conversation. And we established that shared language of learning, because one of the things I've noticed recently, and, and again, you know, hands up as a mom who was, you know, he's a product of a system, um, who was working in the system and, you know, trying to change the system from within it's taken COVID to get me you know to become the person I am now he's like going hang on we need to change things so I would love for more parents to have the opportunity that I've had to have over the last year and to really understand and question how what we mean by 
education, learning all of those things. So how, how would you do that? I give you a magic wand, Steve, and we can do this. How would you do it? Wow. Um, well, it is. There's, there's a number of things that, uh, that I would do. I, I would engage communities. I would love to engage with communities. We're talking about what do they see um, learning and education look like post COVID-19. I think one of the, one of the faults we've got with thinking about system change is that we, um, we, go back and we immediately start when we're talking about education the immediate thought is schools now i love i love my work in school you know i really enjoyed it so i'm not anti-school but i don't necessarily think that schools need to be the center of the the only place where learning takes place and neither do they need to be in control of where learning takes place so so even if if um uh children require qualifications which i don't disagree with why can they not gain those qualifications as a result of all of their learning not just the learning that they do in schools so i would want to engage with communities to look at so what's the potential for um, uh, communities to have much more involvement have much more of a lead in what learning looks like and what education looks like and in having those conversations with them one of the places we would need to start is what's your understanding of what learning looks like if i if i go into it if i go into any school doesn't matter i used to go in and, and i used to i used to be employed to go in to um talk to to schools about changing their curriculum and and introducing a creative curriculum and the first thing i used to ask them was um what does learning look like in the school and if they couldn't tell me what it looked like, if they couldn't articulate that well, I'd say, I think that needs to be your starting point before you even think about changing your curriculum. Because until you can articulate what learning looks like and what it feels like, and that everybody involved in the school can, can, is, can be involved in that, I'm not so sure that you can shape a curriculum that is going to reflect the learning that you're not, that you're not sure of yet. And I think it's a really important place to start. So I would want to start to develop a shared language of learning but i would take it into the community as well as taking it into schools and i would want to explore with them and look at where the opportunities are for to develop learning um within within the community so we broaden the uh, the scope of it and we broaden the the people that uh, engage in it at the moment if we started talking about language of learning it would almost immediately be um restricted to places recognized places of education schools colleges um, early learning centers possibly and it would vary from one to the other the the extent to which they engaged with parents um, and the community in discussions around the work that they do to the extent that they would talk about learning and that so i wouldn't necessarily start there i'd start with communities i and my mission I would say more than anything else, looking at post COVID-19 and what I've learned, because it's been a, a huge experience, a learning experience for me, is that um, I've that, that when we were at the height, when the research I was involved in, when we we're at the um, in the early stages and building up to the height of COVID-19 and, and schools were shut, shut down and we were finding out from countries all around the world, what are you doing? you know to do this because we suddenly realized that not every child can get online yeah it's quite a low proportion in this country but so in other countries that have got no not hadn't got the same facility not got the same infrastructure they were reaching out in other ways and this idea of reaching out just as 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 meant so much to me this why are we not reaching out more and it made me think about the reaching out that we used to do when, when i was in school and i think well we could have done that more and that let, that's led me into realizing actually we need to reach out not just to parents and to families but actually to communities and we need to engage much more with communities and draw them into the conversation so my, my mission would be to to try to encourage communities to to be involved in this discussion about what do we want education and learning to look like post COVID-19 and I would encourage schools to do more 
genuine reaching out as you know on a shared sort of partnership basis with communities not just with parents but with wider with the communities encourage change to come from that direction as well because mm -hmm. there's i don't know how if we would say we were to continue with the system as it is schools cannot deliver the entire curriculum yeah it's just overloaded so and um if we'd have got our act together pre-covid19 and knew what the research had told us before and the practice run in the, in 2016 or 2018 that we'd done um had told us as well that what was likely to happen we would have been better prepared by thinking okay if schools have got to close down or they've got to close down in a limited way what where else in the community could learning uh, be facilitated as well as in the home and i think we could have we would have come up with some very interesting solutions to that not all exactly the same but you know the very interesting solutions within communities if they'd have been prepared for this and they'd have been in anticipation of this going on geared up for um, offering learning opportunities outside of the school as well and i think we should capitalize on that we should go there start there and look right what what could we do yes because it's um I think for me, it sort of fits in quite well with the notion that you know learning is something that is lifelong. You yeah. you're born yeah. to when you die, you, know, yeah. you learn constantly. And one of my frustration, I guess, as a linguist, is that very often when you start really talking to people, uh, we've equated education with schooling, but we don't really say that. It's a little bit like you know we use mental health. But we mean mental ill health but we don't say that yeah 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 exactly and and we do the same with learning don't we if you yeah. put the three together we go yeah. education learning schools no hang on a minute <laughs> education and learning don't necessarily mean the same thing you know knowing when you had schools in as well then it it might be something different again so you know let's let's yeah let's look at it but let's see where's the overlap and and where where are the gaps where things actually are not meeting the needs of some um some young people uh for for yeah the system isn't meeting the needs as well as it could do for some young people for some people it's not meeting the needs at, at all and and as you were saying before the ones that um the obvious you know when we say that you know the school isn't meeting the needs of the learners it's the obvious ones the ones that don't attend school you know what might be the ones that react against it the ones that get expelled actually it, we don't i don't mean that um yes i include them but actually it's easier to deal with that situation because it's obvious where it's less obvious is that the children that go through the system and find a way of getting through the system and in some cases it is a very painful experience for them to do that and it is but they keep their heads down they keep quiet about it and even the ones that survive in the system and seem to survive and seem to do quite well it's very interesting to talk to them and say well, actually yeah i got there i got my uh, i got my exams but i didn't enjoy it and i didn't necessarily follow the things i was particularly interested in i just did the things that the, the options that i could the best options i could take and yeah i've got a good work ethic i got, got a lot of support from home i got you know, kind of expectations set and uh, and i was okay i could work that way it, it was okay for me but i wouldn't say i'd necessarily thrived you use that wonderful word flourish fabian and i think are are we really offering opportunities for 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 children young people and and people as they get older to continue to flourish and to continue to flourish and i'm not sure that we do and maybe again that needs to be one of the things that we talk about where we think well okay so if we were starting if we were looking a bit wider than just schools and we we're looking at the communities in which schools exist if we want everyone in that community to have an equal chance to flourish and people new people come into that community that we've got um, a system that is flexible enough to allow new people coming in to also come in and fairly quickly assimilate and be able to flourish and the system adjust to them not expect them to come in and suddenly become able to adjust to a system when they don't have the language necessarily to access uh, access in the first place how's the system going to adjust to them so i think we need to look at things in a more flexible way much more flexible way than we do at the moment there's some great ideas going on with flexi schooling 
yeah, I've, there's some really good ideas of flexi school, and if we, you know, we can have another long conversation about flexi school in home education, that whole combination of sometimes at home, sometimes at, at school, sometimes working in a library, sometimes working in the garage, yeah, because I've got a particular interest in engineering, cars and motorcycles, sometimes working in a museum, sometimes working in the florists because they're absolutely besotted with you know, the idea of growing and growing flowers and that you know, that's the place or the garden centre, that's the place where they would love to be. So why are we not being flexible by allowing them opportunities to have time there and time in other places where they can get that proper mix that is going to work for them? We need to be much more open to a more flexible system. And I think, I actually think that it wouldn't make the teachers' um, lives harder I actually think they would flourish in in a more flexible system and if we were if we were working towards that if we made a commitment to working towards something like that i would i love that i love that idea of um but that would require completely scrapping the notion that um the the only way you can be successful is if you get you know get the dcse get the a levels get the, you know, go to the holy grail that university is, preferably Oxford and Cambridge. If you can't do Oxford and Cambridge, then find a Russell Group University. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you'll go to the other ones, but really just go for the Russell Group, you know, if you can't do Oxford and Cambridge, the holy grail. And, you know, get the higher degree because now the degree is not enough. It just, it requires us, all of us, to question that model, to question that one path, right? Where, yeah. um, you know, I've got, I've said many times, I'm sure the listeners are getting fed up with that, but, you know, my two boys couldn't be more different. They're, you know, chalk and cheese. One is very academic and he fits in the model. Yeah. Um, and yet he's the one who's the most vocal about how he's not enjoying school. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, well, I rest my case. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think so. Yeah. So we need to you know, going back to what you were saying, we need to have these conversations and we need to have conversations that lead to potential for change. And I think what COVID has is, is made a lot of people um, feel is that because I, I, I've been having these conversations for some time. But I feel that there's a more sense of urgency and purpose about it at the moment. And I think we have an opportunity which has come about in a rather unfortunate way. But we would be foolish if we didn't take this opportunity to make those conversations matter more by considering. So how can we do this? How could we move towards something where uh, um, we've got a better system? And you've made a start with that i think very much fabian with the um with your group of learners and listening to them giving them a real authentic voice and uh, and finding out from them tell us what we need to know that if we could make this system better work better for you either because you've just come through it and you're just reflecting on it or you're in the middle of it what do you want us to know and we need to listen we need to be prepared to listen and we need to then be prepared to act on what we hear and i think the more we can um publish that the you know, um authentic the authentic voice of learners then and the more that we can share that the more we'll get a sense of where potentially this this could take us i think it's started to shape up a little bit uh, and i don't think it, it will be one model i think it, it's it's um we're part of a process at the moment that is pushing us almost inexorably towards change. And I think we've just got to keep going. And I don't think, you know, we don't think we should, um, when somebody flicks a switch and we can all go back to normal, you know, um, accept that. I think we should know. No, we, we've gone too far already with this conversation and we need to, we now need this to to be translated into something that's going to be meaningful. We need got more work to be done. We need to listen more to, you know, to all of the stakeholders in this. But we uh, we do need to challenge those norms, and we need to, you know we need to uh, question whether actually you know, we do require those pieces of paper, or if we do require those pieces of paper, which we probably will continue to do so. Do we have to spend two years getting it? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm pretty certain that, you know, I'm pretty certain if we were taught to talk to um, 
young people that have done GCSEs and we were to say to them, how long do you think it would have taken you to find out what you needed to know in order to pass that exam? Because I don't think it needs such a long time to do it. And now we've got remote learning and we've got online learning. If you could do that in 12 weeks, <laughs> would would you go for it and if that meant that you could do other things you know um outside of those 12 weeks even if you sort of just concentrated on that and you had a, and, and and for people who are able to study that way and can then you know get that exam done and passed and out of the way because they can learn it in that space of time then maybe that's something that if if exams continue to be important things, maybe that's one of the ways we can get around it. I just would question seriously whether you need to spend, if you can spend a more concentrated time, get, if it's all about passing an exam, I would put all my efforts into getting that one done and out of the way. If it's about learning as well as passing the exam, then I think I'd be more interested in collecting more of a portfolio of stuff that I was collecting on the way and be assessed as I was going. And then somebody can, and can when it gets to a point where they think, yeah, that's fine, that's great. You've, you've demonstrated more than adequately that you are of this standard, therefore you get this recognition. We just need to be more flexible about it. We just one system and everybody gets pushed through it in a similar way and, uh, and if you don't like it, tough, just get on with it. And if you don't fit into it, squeeze or, you know, drop out the system. And um, and then somebody will have another go at you afterwards. <laughs> I lost you then. Yes, I, I switched my um, video. Yeah, I put my video off because I I um I had a danger of doing that, and I was very conscious about the fact that as a as a linguist, um, there's an important part of co communication and discussion, and that, that is um uh, being able to body language and read reading people's faces as well. So I was just very conscious of the fact that, uh, and I didn't explain to you before we started. Well, no, that, that's fine. It's, that, it's 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 all good, and it's all. Yeah. That's what I love about those conversations. They're imperfectly perfect. And yeah, yeah. Fabulous. Um, maybe you, somebody, maybe somebody above was thinking he said enough. <laughs> Switch him off. <laughs> Otherwise, they're going all day. So, so Steve, um, I have loved our conversation as always. Um, I'm really inspired, and I'm really inspired with that notion of shared language of learning, and you know, discussing more around what we mean by learning and how is that different. Really, really inspired by that, um, and inspired by the those white, you know, white spaces because I think we need them more than ever. Um, you know, in a world where we're constantly busy, so really love those. But those are the two things that I'm taking away you know, amongst other things from our conversation. For our listeners, if you had to, for them to, to remember two things or several things or one thing, what would you want to leave them with? Um, I, I think we need to build trust into our, whatever our new system is going to look like. We, we do need to learn from our finished partners. And I think e equity, everybody's equal. And so we need to give everybody a voice and we need to listen to everybody and we need to listen properly to everybody. In order to do that, I think a shared language for learning facilitates that actually is, is, is an underlying um, item for equity. Um, it puts people on an, on an equal basis if we've got a shared language of, of what we're talking about. I think trust is such an important thing um, for, for us to, to take from our Finnish colleagues and trust can only occur if I think if we've got um, uh, leaders who 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 model that and and show that demonstrate their trust, and I think fundamentally we need to trust one another more. We need to be able to, you know remember that we can trust one another more. And I think there's a lot of really good things have happened as a, as out of the unfortunate situation with COVID-19, where people, man's inhumanity to man is in some cases have been pushed to one side and, and actually we've, we've shown that we can be much better at being um, a human being. And, and, the, and the third thing that we learned from um, 
from the Finns is this idea of autonomy and, and actually we can, uh, and autonomy in an equitable society means that everybody um, can be trusted to take responsibility and take shared responsibility. And if we're doing it, if we're doing it for the right reasons, then you know, we, shouldn't be fr we shouldn't be fearful of the accountability that you know, somebody might be holding over us. We need to push that to one side and leaders need to push that to one side, hold that back and, and put, place their trust in teachers and learners in order to make this you know, a, better, a better system. We can get a better system if we really try hard. I love it. Thank you so much, Steve. That was just lovely. Thank you, Fabienne. It's been lovely. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. You can also reach me via Twitter at FlourishingHE on LinkedIn or you can join our private Facebook group, Flourishing Education. All the links are easily available on anchor.fm. Thank you so much and I hope you are flourishing. Bye for now.